Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The national living wage is going up to £11 an hour from next April. But what's the idea of a living wage? And is this increase enough for a decent standard of living? Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and this is Reasons Revisited. It's a weekly, fun-sized reason to be cheerful. We dig back into our five-year audio archive and brief you on a big idea that's having a moment. This week, we're talking about the living wage. On Monday, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, announced that the national living wage would increase from £10.42 to at least £11 an hour from April next year. The national living wage is a pay floor. Workers aged 23 and over are entitled to receive at least this amount per hour from their employer. The minimum wage is lower. That's the rate of pay that workers under the age of 23 are legally entitled to. The Chancellor's increased the national living wage following the advice of the Low Pay Commission, and he said that it'll help 2 million of the lowest paid workers. Now, confusingly, the national living wage is different to the real living wage, which is currently set at a higher rate by the Living Wage Foundation and is a voluntary commitment. Many people have said that setting a government-regulated minimum wage has been a genuine example of progressive change over the last century. But that doesn't mean there weren't worries about the effect it had have on the labour market when it was introduced. Is the guarantee of a minimum income enough to give people a decent standard of living, especially at a time when in-work poverty is so high? And why is the real living wage different to the government-set national living wage? Here are the basics. The origins of the Real Living Wage campaign go back to 2001 with community organising group Citizens UK. Over the years, it called for a London living wage and in 2011, the Living Wage Foundation was established. In 2015, then-Chancellor George Osborne announced a compulsory living wage for workers aged over 25, using the language of the campaigners. This was set on a backdrop of cuts to tax credits and benefits. The national minimum and living wage is uprated each year by the Low Pay Commission. There's a target for the national living wage to rise to two-thirds of median earnings by 2024. The first legally enforceable minimum wage was introduced in 1909 for four specific industries, and it expanded to others over the years. Almost 90 years later, 
the National Minimum Wage Act of 1998 created a minimum wage for workers across all industries, and it was a flagship new labour policy. In December 2021, historian Sheila Blackburn and MP Margaret Beckett, who was Secretary of State for Trade and Industry under Tony Blair, spoke to us about the history of the minimum wage and where it all began. How far back historically do we have to go to to find the origins of this? 1909, basically, with the new Liberal Reform Trade Boards Act. Um, It's a very tentative measure. The idea was to set a standard below which workers couldn't live and labour. But Winston Churchill, who was actually at the Board of Trade, who, who was really in charge of the legislation, did want a national minimum wage of 30 shillings a week. That's uh, pound fifty in present day terms. But Labour Party pioneers uh, and supporters of low pay were horrified by this because it would encompass 30% of the workforce. Britain was a low-waged economy. So supporters of legal control of low pay at that time, very similar to today with the Low Pay Commission, wanted compromise, a small experiment, something that would be able to be increased in the future. Just going back to what happened in 1909, where does the social and political pressure come from for the introduction of these wages boards? There really is, and as today, a a sort of um, division between those who supported anti-sweating legislation because of social justice, that people should have a right to a decent standard of living. And those who said, you've got to have economic efficiency. And Winston Churchill in particular saw a national minimum wage as aiming for economic efficiency. He's a great supporter of German efficiency, that you couldn't keep your empire safe if you didn't have a fit and healthy workforce. Margaret, what are your sort of memories of the process of arguing for this. I think a lot of our listeners will find it hard to believe that it was controversial, um, but it was highly controversial, wasn't it? Yes, it was. We had this policy process, which was very much looking into the future. And part of it was that we had an economic policy commission where John Smith, as shadow chancellor, said social justice and economic prosperity and economic efficiency go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Historically, that had tended to be seen, not least in the labour movement, that you have one or the other. You're either fair to people and you're socially just and you try to help the least well-off, the most vulnerable, or you have economic efficiency, but you can't have the two together. As you heard from Margaret and Sheila there, there was a perceived trade-off between prioritising people's livelihoods and economic efficiency. Gavin Kelly, chair of the Living Wage Commission, told us back in 2021 that although setting a minimum wage has benefited the lives of lowest paid workers, there are still millions of working people living in poverty. Gavin, talk to us about your role around the living wage, because I don't think we've actually explained to people the difference between the real living wage, which is what you have a role in, the national living wage, which is what the government called their minimum wage for the uh, uh, is it the over 20? Yeah, it's currently over 23. It was over 25. Just explain that distinction. Should, should this all be the same thing if the minimum wage is doing its job properly? So the minimum wage is basically set by kind of academic experts and employers and trade unions working out how high do we think we could go without costing jobs. The impact on employment potentially is at the heart of the decision. 
I chaired something called the Living Wage Commission, which is a group of people that sets the UK real living wage and it sets the London living wage. We don't sit discussing whether or not if this will have an employment effect. This is a, a benchmark which we work out, which basically is how much do you need to earn to be able to live a minimum but decent standard of living in this country as defined by members of the British public. More than half the FTSE are signed up. And, and we think our estimate is about 300,000 workers are directly paid the real living wage and there'll be lots of other people who benefit from it because lots of employers don't sign up to it, but they sort of follow it without without formally signing up to it. So it's, it's, it's become part of the landscape of pay in this country. There is a sort of paradox, isn't there, which is that we've had this great success on the minimum wage in terms of its introduction, its increase, but we also have had the worst squeeze on living standards of any decade since goodness knows when, and we've got a very high percentage of the people who are in poverty are people in work. How do we explain this apparent sort of paradox here? I mean, it's obviously not because of the minimum wage. I guess the answer is it would have been worse. Categorically, it would have been far worse. Whatever we might think about working poverty and so on, wages at the bottom have been rising faster than wages in the middle for the last 10 years. That is not an accident. That is what setting your minimum wage relative to the medium and pushing it up, that, that's what it does. It's compressing the bottom half of the wage distribution. But why are more people in working poverty then than before? Well, because costs have gone up a huge amount. And to be honest, what really drives working poverty has got a lot to do with social security. And the minimum wage is not an answer to having a threadbare social security system. Has a voluntary commitment to pay more than the national living wage been a success? We'll come on to that, but now let's turn to Lola McAvoy from the Living Wage Foundation as we go all the way back to March 2019. Here, she explains how the foundation calculates the real living wage. So our rate is independently calculated each year by the Resolution Foundation, and it takes into account things like travel costs, inflation, um, housing, bills, but it also takes into account a social consensus for what people who are working should be able to afford. So one year, a smartphone might have gone in, or another year, they might take into account people needing a car when public transport might not be sufficient anymore. So um, the reason why the Living Wage Foundation doesn't call on government to make the real living wage the government minimum is because our campaign has always been about not waiting for um, politicians to make decisions. Ours has always been about getting businesses to act now. Why wait for the next general election, the general election after that, and then a couple of years in for them to uplift the minimum wage? What we want to see is businesses who can afford it, and there are plenty, (laughs) signing up to pay the real living wage now. Talk us through the reasons you give to businesses uh, for paying the living wage, why it's you know good for their businesses and their employees, and then what the reaction tends to be. <laughs> well, first of all, I would say that the majority of our businesses who sign up do tell us that it's a values-led decision, that they weren't... Again, it comes down to this interesting point about outsourcing. A lot of our businesses didn't really know what their cleaners were paid because they're outsourced, or they didn't know that the security guards weren't earning enough to live on. Um, so that's the first thing, is that when we explain to them that you have actually got real issues with low pay in your organisation, that's when they start thinking about accreditation. But also there are huge business benefits. So the more low paid people you give a pay rise to, the more business benefits you'll see. Obviously, that's not rocket science. Um, But they see a higher motivated uh, workforce, obviously higher retention rates because people don't leave the job so quickly, um, which then saves on HR costs for recruitment. So there are big and brand benefits. You know, ultimately, when you hear that your football team pays the real living wage, you're over the moon. So for our listeners... 
How can they get involved in some of your your campaigns? I think the best way would be as an employee, go and ask your HR manager, are you accredited with the Living Wage Foundation? Because your HR manager will say, oh, of course we pay the living wage. You get above it, don't you? Find out, are we paying the living wage to our cleaners? Um, And if we are, can we accredit with the Living Wage Foundation? Just see what they say. Lola McAvoy there explaining how the Living Wage Foundation's campaign has been a success, but how widespread is the real living wage now? The Real Living Wage is the only UK wage based on the cost of living. It's voluntarily paid by almost 14,000 businesses, charities and other organisations. The Real Living Wage is currently set at £10.90 and eleven ninety-five in London. How's this calculated? The Resolution Foundation look at a basket of goods which draws on something called the Minimum Income Standard. This research is based on what the public think you need for a minimally acceptable standard of living here in the UK. Paying the real living wage is good for business, with 94% of living wage employers saying that they've benefited from accreditation, increased employee retention and seeing improvements in their reputation. Workers say that it's reduced money worries, stress levels and it's allowed them to spend more time with their families. So where next for a living wage? The Chancellor's decision to increase the government's national living wage to at least £11 from next April is welcome news for many low-paid workers. However, the Living Wage Foundation doesn't think that this is enough for workers to have a decent standard of living in the current economic climate, and they're set to significantly increase their own real living wage at the end of October. Why isn't the national living wage enough? Research from the foundation has shown that 60% of people earning below the real living wage have used a food bank in the past year, and nearly 40% were regularly skipping meals. The latest data, which is from 2020 to 21, shows that 11% of all workers were in poverty. That's compared with 13% previous year. We don't yet have the data for the last year, but the cost of living crisis has likely worsened the situation, especially if wages aren't keeping pace with the rate of inflation. And as Gavin said, a living wage is useless without an adequate social safety net. The call for a real living wage that actually reflects the cost of living has never been greater. Here are your takeaway nuggets. First... The minimum wage, the national living wage and the real living wage are all distinct. The Chancellor can set the rate for the first two and employers are legally obliged to pay any workers aged 23 and over the national living wage. The real living wage is a voluntary choice made by employers and workers will get paid more if they live in London. Next, the real living wage is the only wage that is calculated according to the cost of living based on a basket of household goods and services. This is likely to go up in October and be significantly more than the government's rise to £11 an hour. Finally, the campaign for a real living wage has been a great success. Almost 14,000 organisations are voluntarily paying it to their staff and over 400,000 employees have received a pay rise because of it. I'll be back with Ed on Monday for a brand new episode of Reasons to be Cheerful. We would love to hear from you. Find us on social media or get in touch through our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. I'm Jeff Lloyd and written and produced by Rachel Barmer. This has been Reasons Revisited. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.